What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. Many of us, thousands of us, watched as the San Francisco Police Union backed and GOP out-of-towner millionaire funded the recall campaign against former San Francisco District Attorney Chester Boudin gained traction and steam. We watched a massive disinformation campaign play out in mainstream media and on Twitter. We saw communities living in real crisis have their pain and trauma manipulated for nefarious purposes. And ultimately, we watched a democratically elected district attorney lose his seat to these efforts. Following that loss, San Francisco Mayor London Breed appointed Brooke Jenkins to be the interim district attorney. Jenkins promised to clean up San Francisco's streets, support the violent and scandal-ridden San Francisco Police Department, and, quote-unquote, be tough on crime. But what has really happened since she took office? What has been exposed in terms of how she actually ascended to that seat? And what is on the horizon in terms of increased harm to San Francisco's most vulnerable populations? We're joined this morning by Lexa Grainer, an attorney formerly with the San Francisco DA's office who resigned. Good morning, Lexa. Good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show this morning. Really, really happy to have and you. And Rachel Marshall, communi- former communications director and policy advisor for recalled San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin. She's got an article in the appeal called Brooke Jenkins Can't Have It Both Ways. The new San Francisco DA is mixing tough on crime rhetoric with phony progressivism. Neither will solve the city's problems. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Kat. Such a pleasure to be with you. Really, really glad to to get you on, both of you. Rachel, I want to start with you. Sure. Uh, Just a little background. How did you come to join the Chesa Boudin team, and what was your role there? Thank you so much. I was a public defender uh, for pretty much my entire legal career before joining DA Boudin's administration. And as a public defender, I really saw so many of the systemic problems that were enduring in our legal system. And when DA Boudin was elected, I was excited to be a part of implementing meaningful change and recognizing the critical role that prosecutors play in promoting justice and recognizing that they have tremendous power. And DA Boudin was probably the most visible face of a progressive prosecutor reform movement that was focused on prosecutors using the tremendous power afforded to them to make good reforms and to create promote justice along with public safety. And so I was thrilled to join his administration where, as you mentioned, I was the director of communications and also a policy advisor. And so I, I worked with DA Boudin on almost every issue that we we touched and policies that we talked that we implemented and was very much um you know, involved in in his his leadership team, and so have been really devastated, frankly, to see a lot of the tremendous progress that we made be rolled back so quickly. Yeah, and and not that folks expect me to do unbiased reporting, but for full transparency, <laughs> I was a supporter of the Boudin administration, um, and and stood with him on several of the progressive uh, policies he tried to implement or did implement. Lexa, same question for you: How did you come to work uh, with the Chesa Boudin administration, and what was your role there? Sure. Well, I actually had somewhat of a di- different background um, from Rachel. And I started, well, first I started clerking where I actually met Chesa Boudin several years ago ago and while clerking in the Northern District of California. But then I went into uh, law firm practice and was practicing as a civil litigator for several years. And I enjoyed the complexity of that work. 
but I was also constantly longing for a career where I was going to make more of a difference and do something that was more connected to my community. So meanwhile, from my office in the, you know, sky rise in downtown San Francisco, I saw Chase Boudin really creating a movement in San Francisco around criminal justice reform. And like many people in 2019, I was incredibly inspired and I wanted to be a part of it and I wanted to to join the office. Um, so I told him that and luckily for me, there was a really great position available in the white collar unit that would leverage my prior experience as a civil litigator in litigating very complex cases there, um, focusing on both complex criminal cases as well as civil litigation. Um, So that is how I ended up at the district attorney's office. Rachel, you just you said something in your uh, initial response that I'd actually like you to expound upon before we move forward. Um, I will say for my part, Chessa Boudin is the only prosecutor I've ever uh, coupled with the word progressive uh, in the entire country. Um, but you said, um, which as an abolitionist, right, for me, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. Sure. Uh, but, but you said uh, the, the role that DAs have in, I think you said, promoting justice. And I would love it if you would say more about that. Sure. Well, I think a lot of the work that D.A. Boudin did and was such an innovator in doing uh, really demonstrates the power of prosecutors and how they can do exactly what, what we're talking about, how they can promote justice. And, you know, for example, we saw a historic reduction in the jail population under D.A. Boudin uh, with a recognition that we can address root causes of crime and that incarceration should be a last resort, not a first one. We saw him implement first in the country policies to completely eliminate bail, um, as well as other great policies like stopping to charge kids as adults. Um, and also we saw critically historic work to hold police accountable for in many ways the first time in San Francisco when they commit harm, when they use excessive force, excessive violence. And that was really critical work that we're already seeing being undone. And what DA Boudin's entire administration was focused on was how do we address root causes of violence and harm? How do we center victims in the decisions that prosecutors make as opposed to using them as pawns or exploiting victims as often happens in the criminal justice system? Um, How do we hold the powerful accountable just like anyone else as opposed to replicating the harms that the criminal legal system has caused disproportionately on low-income communities, people of color? How do we reframe the work of prosecutors to ensure that we're doing justice? And another example of that is the work to also right wrongs that past past prosecutors have um, imposed. So for example, D.A. Boudin started the Innocence Commission, which was a groundbreaking you know, effort to really say, let's look at cases in the past that may have been wrongful convictions and let's figure out when someone needs to be resentenced, when someone needs to be exonerated. And we've already seen that work be undone in really terrifying ways, frankly, where the, you know, the first firing uh, that D.A. Jenkins imposed was firing the head of the Innocence Commission in our office, who was also a queer woman of color. Um, And that was two months ago, and there's been no replacement. Um, So even though, you know, D.A. Jenkins has postured publicly that she supports the Innocence Commission, she hasn't replaced uh, the D.A.'s representative on that commission. And the only case that she's touched 
um, and the Innocence Commission since taking office has been a case where she's now opposed resentencing after D.A. Boudin had had supported it. So that's just one example of undoing a lot of the critical reforms that prosecutors are able to implement and that D.A. Boudin was such a leader in implementing in San Francisco. And this is really harmful for the people of San Francisco and our communities more broadly. Yeah, and we're going to walk through uh, some sure. of those one by one. I do just want to give a quick shout out to Laura Bazelon because I think it was a conversation with her that I had a couple of years ago where she talked about that actually prosecutors are our key to decarceration, mm-hmm. right? That, that that's where the power lies, making it that much more important, I think, actually for abolitionists to to not just sort of ignore <laughs> or, or, or or remove our work from working with, with DAs, but, but really identifying DAs that can aid in our mission to free them all, as Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. <laughs> says. Uh, Lexa, talk to me about the first week uh, when Jenkins was making more personal appearance than she was meeting with staff uh, and walk us into the July 8th meeting of senior staff where she pronounced she wanted a complete review of all pending plea deals and drug-related cases. Well, certainly, and Rachel can be able to talk to that as well because she was actually in that meeting with senior staff where I was more of a a line attorney in the white collar unit and not invited to that meeting. But what I would say about the first week of office is that there was an eerie level of silence because although Brooke Jenkins had been appointed as interim DA, we received no email with even a hello. Um, There was no communication whatsoever internally with the office. Meanwhile, we were seeing Brooke Jenkins in the news day after day, appearing in the Tenderloin, appearing with the mayor, making public statements about her future plans for the office, which were very lacking in detail, but continued her her rhetoric. Um, But we weren't seeing her actually connect or do anything to further her relationships with people inside of the office. So... My recollection of the first week is just of absolute silence and bewilderment at that silence. And, and I'm happy to jump in and talk about that first meeting, Kat, please, if that's helpful. Please, um, and, so- and, and, I, and as you're doing that, Rachel, please talk about who was in that meeting that may sure. have come as a bit of surprise to folks. Yeah, so the meeting was about 20 uh, people who were senior managers in the office um, who were told uh, to just be present um, on interim DA Jenkins' first day. And what was so shocking uh, as we walked into that room was that the mayor's deputy chief of staff was sitting there taking notes and sitting there in the room. And and I just want to emphasize uh, for your listeners how, how bizarre and disturbing that is to have a mayor's representative essentially monitoring a brand new DA um, in a meeting with senior staff. I mean, there can be no confidential conversation when there's a member of the mayor's administration sitting there and you know, how are we, what, what kind of message does that send about the purpose of this administration? And sure enough, uh, the meeting seemed to lack an agenda altogether. It was a very strange and cold meeting. Um, but the one takeaway was that uh, interim DA Jenkins announced that drug crimes were her priority, which was sort of shocking uh, that, you know, her top priority was going to be drug crimes and she was going to do a, a thorough review of every single drug case uh, that had uh, been handled by DA Boudin. And that was 
pretty shocking to a lot of the folks who were in the room. But it was particularly revealing, I think, given that the mayor's representative was sitting in the room. And, you know, it, it's we know that this is a mayor who has talked a lot about drug dealing and the tenderloin and has been getting a lot of heat for those issues. So it seemed pretty clear that she was pulling the strings in dictating how a DA's office was going to approach crime. And that's not in the interest of San Franciscans. San Franciscans need a DA who is independent, who is making decisions based on justice and safety. We can't have a DA who is simply doing what the mayor wants her to do and what the mayor's orders are. That's not only terrifying for the people of San Francisco, but it's unethical. Prosecutors have a duty to be independent and make decisions governed on the law and evidence, and that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, but the other thing that I want to mention from that meeting that was contradicted so quickly was that during that meeting, Jenkins assured us, don't worry, I'm not going to make any personnel decisions without meeting with each of you. And I want to meet with, you know, senior managers and make decisions that are thoughtful. I don't see people as chasa people and, you know, pre-chasa people. I want us all to be united, which, you know, first of all, was not well received given the fact that she had spent months and months attacking our office and creating and stowing division. And then now that it no longer benefited her, wanted to walk away from it. But put that aside for a moment, it was completely untrue because just a week after that meeting, without meeting with anyone um, who was fired, she fired 15 people on the same day um, and all of them had been had been hired by D.A. Boudin and had been critical in his administration in different ways. But look, I was fired and I am not asking for sympathy for being fired. I was, as I mentioned, very involved in D.A. Boudin's administration publicly. So I expected to be fired. But what was so troubling to me about the firings were who some of the other people that were fired were. I mean, she fired, as I mentioned, the head of the Innocence Commission. She fired... Uh, she has fired or demoted every single person who is touching police accountability cases, prosecuting police officers. She fired the data director, who's a renowned national expert on criminal justice and data transparency, who was really an innovator in our office in making data publicly accessible, fired her for no reason. And now, sure enough, we've already seen data snafus happening in the office since. Um, so it, there's a real, it's really revealing by the people that she chose to fire that she is not a DA who's committed to reform and that she is not advancing reform, but is just seeking to undo the work that DA Boudin promoted. Um, I should also mention that she demoted the head of victim services, the first Chinese American uh, in that role, who was really a leader in promoting language access, demoted her as well. So everything she said about wanting to have conversations with folks before she made personnel decisions was just simply not true. A couple of things if, on. If oh. I'm coming right to you, Lexa. Just one one second. A, a, a couple of things on that. A. Uh, it's also true that the mayor's office was writing the press releases for exactly uh, for Jenkins and fielding press inquiries. Yes. Um, which is also uh, uh, a bit disturbing. Uh, Lexa, I actually do want to turn to you, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm attributing the quote to the right person uh, in, in something that I read in prepping for today that you said uh, uh, there is a certain amount of loyalty that, that's expected, right, when administrations turn over. And, and so some people do end up going. But was this were these practical fires? This is sort of a rhetorical question, but I'd like you to answer it or political. All of them were political fires. Um, and that's evidenced by the fact that no one who was either fired or demoted was given any explanation. Um, and the contrast between 
performance reviews that those employees were receiving based on their work quality and then what ultimately happened to them and their, their fate in the office. Um, and what I would like to add to the discussion about just the sheer broad sweep of these political firings um, is that they included, you know, like Rachel said, she was not particularly shocked to be included within the attorneys who were dismissed. She was very close and with Chase Boudin, working very closely with him on both policy and communication. Um, so she was somewhat in a different camp than someone like myself, um, who was doing more of the casework of the office. I particularly was in the white collar unit. Um, and I didn't have a political position that worked on policy whatsoever. I had no management authority. My role in the office was really to handle the day-to-day case, cases and appearances and all the requirements of managing cases that are required of attorneys. So um, I was preparing for several trials, uh, and I had very significant cases. I was the only person prosecuting environmental crimes. I was the only attorney um, assigned to work on the ghost gun litigation. And in that case, we were prosecuting several companies that were manufacturing assembly kits that are sold online without any background check and then can be assembled at home in less than 30 minutes and function as a, as a firearm, just as deadly as any other firearm. And, you know, I was demoted. And I was demoted shortly after the large sweep of firings. And that was pretty shocking to me. But I was not the only, quote-unquote, line attorney that suffered an adverse employment action. And I think that's the really shocking thing, is that there were so many attorneys included in the firings and demotions. And I would say about half of them were just attorneys like me doing the ordinary casework of the office. And that added another shock value to all attorneys who weren't expecting this. Because the check on a DA coming into power, what stops them from just firing everyone who supported the prior administration is the fact that real work needs to be done. And every time you fire or you reassign an attorney, that case or the hundreds of cases that that attorney handled need to be reassigned to attorneys who are already overworked, already overburdened. And it's a huge disruption in the case flow of the work of the office. So it's really the sheer breadth and extent of her, what I call a political purge that was shocking to most people in the office. Um, When I was demoted, Every single person who spoke to me relayed to me in confidence their sheer shock, their disappointment, and a questioning of where Brooke Jenkins' priorities were because these decisions were being rendered without an analysis of whether that attorney did good work. It was politically motivated, and the effect on how the office runs is frankly disastrous. And if I could add to that real quick, I, I mean, I think that's sure. right. And it has it has caused a, a level of defeat from the, the folks I've talked to who both left as well as are still in the office because there's just a, an absence of communication uh, 
folks are learning about policies through press releases. There's an unclear chain of command. Um, but to Lex's point, it's really disorganized in terms of, you know, it's one thing to fire folks and replace them. But as I mentioned, like the data director hasn't been replaced. The Innocence Commission leader hasn't been replaced. There's just all of these vacancies that continue to be unfilled with no plan for how those cases or that work is going to be is going to continue. And what I think is also really interesting is that in addition to the sweep of firings and demotions, there have been a lot of resignations. And the reason I bring that up is because so much of the attack that um, DA Jenkins had had uh, led against uh, DA Boudin was blaming him for turnover in the office and saying that turnover is so terrible. So by her own measure, uh, turnover is very troubling under her administration. It's about 30 people have turned over since she's taken office about two months ago or so. So this wow. is an office that's in chaos in many ways and one that is not only not valuing safety or reform, but also doesn't seem to have a plan for how to handle the work that was being done already. And I would just that add takes- that these resignations aren't surprising when we understand the culture of fear that the terminations and demotions have created because everyone many of these attorneys are committed to criminal criminal justice reform, but they fear that if they say or do something showing that support, they're going to be the next on the chopping block. So it's a very uncomfortable place to work. There's um, an immense amount of fear and silence right now. That takes us to 8.30 in the morning here on Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're talking about newly appointed San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins with two former uh, attorneys in the Tessa Boudin administration, Lexa Grainer and Rachel Marshall. Uh, Tessa became the first district attorney to charge police officers for crimes against the people in the history of the city. How much do you, Lexa, and then Rachel, uh, you jump in, how much do you attribute that to his becoming a target for recall? I think that that put a target on his back. I mean, he had the boldness to confront a very established institution (laughs) here and is paying the price for that. There's no secret that the police officers association did everything in their power to undermine Chase Boutin and his platform from day one. Um, The recall, the the first one was initiated three days into his term. So I think that it's so important to hold police accountable. And this is actually a very popular proposition amongst the the public. I think no one wants to see police officers get away with committing crimes while under the color of authority, while they're holding this extreme position of power and be let away for very violent acts and which have historically been undercharged in San Francisco and across the country. So the fact that Chesa was willing to address this huge problem in the in this country um, really made him a target by the POA, by all of their um, force and money. And Rachel, I actually want you to tack on to that. Uh, sure. How, if at all, 
Do you anticipate the Jenkins administration holding police accountable for bad behavior, use of force, unjustified murders, racial profiling, unwarranted arrests, uh, racist tech scandals? I mean, these are all things that are pretty regularly in the news about SFPD. Right. Right. Well, I, I think that we, we kind of know the answer from her initial actions. So as I mentioned earlier, she has fired or demoted every single attorney who worked to hold police accountable or was prosecuting cases involving police misconduct. But what I think is also really telling that I don't think has gotten enough attention has been that she is delayed. She has asked to continue court cases in pending cases against police officers for excessive force. And Shockingly, she has um, asked to delay them until after the election in November. Um, so, you know, the rumor is that she's going to then dismiss those cases, but doesn't want to do that before the election. But we know from her actions already that she is not someone who's prioritizing police accountability. We see already that she's been, you know, partnering with the police in very public ways. And the and the police union um, has, you know, clearly, as Lexa talked about, targeted D.A. Boudin and is supporting her. Um, we saw that all the time with misinformation coming from the police union against D.A. Boudin. Um, she has clearly signaled that her goal is to support um, the police union and, and to, you know, just like she is being controlled by the mayor, and we know the mayor has been, you know, very much, um, you know, in line with the police union as well. Um, we see that that's happening again uh, from her. Um, and I, I just want to emphasize how critical this is because these were historic cases that were filed by DA Boudin. These were the first two ever in San Francisco history cases involving cases charging officers um, for homicide charges um, while they were on duty. And those cases are now delayed till after the election and the attorneys handling them have been either fired or demoted. That's really, really troubling. Police accountability was such a hard fought struggle in San Francisco. And it's not even just those prosecutions. It's DA Boudin was really a leader in implementing police reforms more broadly as well. We had all kinds of policies designed to reduce, um, you know, reliance on officers who had known misconduct, to prevent the, the hiring of officers with known misconduct in San Francisco, to refuse to accept police union money um, as prosecutors. I mean, there were so many reforms that this administration innovated, uh, such as also refusing to charge cases involving resisting arrest without reviewing all of the evidence to make sure it's not a cover-up. But this is an administration that is clearly invest, invested in pandering to the police union <clears throat> rather than promoting justice. And it's deeply disturbing to know that all of the progress and all of those critical cases, like how do you tell the family of Kieta O'Neill that exactly. that case is going to be continued? I mean, they're devastated, understandably, and that because they see the writing on the wall. That, that that case is not going forward after we fought so hard um, for justice and so many communities fought so hard for justice in a lot of these cases that caused so much devastation to our communities. It's deeply troubling that that work is being undone so quickly and so dishonestly because it's being done in these you know roundabout ways like continuing cases and firing and demoting folks, but they've all been replaced by people who have never prosecuted a single officer. And, th and that matters because like that actually is something that requires practice, right? That, that exactly. I know that from working with the lawyers that work with the Anti-Police Terror Project. That is something mm -hmm. that takes, um, you've got to do it a bunch of times before you get good at it because of how complicated it is. And I'm glad that you brought up Keta because we also got the phone call from his mm -hmm. family and know how devastated they are. Mm -hmm. Heartbreaking. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry, Lexa, go ahead. And if I could just add to um, this topic of something that we shouldn't expect to see from Jenkins, which is vigorously, generally, vigorously holding police to account in the way that we saw from Boudin. And I think 
a very good example of this was when our office under Boudin's administration discovered that SFPD was using DNA evidence from rape victims in their bucket of DNA evidence from which they looked to match for crimes. Case of Boudin halted that practice immediately. It triggered legislation at first by the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco to stop the conduct by SFPD. It triggered legislation at the state level. Not just um, triggered, he co-sponsored it, just to jump in. Yes, thank you. And even this week, we're seeing a lawsuit that was just filed by a woman who had her DNA evidence um, collected during in a rape kit and then used against her against her years later, five years later, in an investigation for burglary, and she is now suing the city for that conduct. So that's the type of reaction that we would hope to see from the district attorney's office as a check on police officer misconduct. SFPD should have never been using rape victims' DNA to find a matching DNA source um, to match uh, for a crime. Yet that was happening. SFPD did not stop that horrific practice itself. It took the DA's office to expose the practice and to stop the practice. Now, when we have Brooke Jenkins in power, should we expect something like that, a, a reaction like that, to you know, robustly take action to stop this horrific practice? Like, I, I don't expect that from her. Well, and not only really that, I don't even expect them. that it would be exposed, right? Because so much of this was about exactly. not just covering it up, uh, which we know too many prosecutors do um, to, to help police. And instead, you know, sunshine is critical to expose this kind of misconduct and then put a stop to it. So who knows what we won't even know is happening that isn't being exposed. Okay, we've got a lot to get into, and I got less than 20 minutes to do it. Um, so let's move along. Uh, one of the things that have, has come up is uh, Brooke Jenkins claimed to be a volunteer working on the mm -hmm. Recall Chessa campaign. Um, what do we know now about her compensation for those efforts? I don't know which one of you wants to start. Sure, I can start with that one. Um, so we know that Brooke Jenkins was, during the time of the recall, while she's claiming to be a volunteer spokesperson, repeatedly to media outlets. She's also being paid by three nonprofits, three 501c3s, which are prohibited from participating in any political campaign like the recall. Now, she claims that her work was unrelated to the recall and therefore legal, um, but that claim is complete. She refuses to support that with any evidence, which she could easily do. Um, she's claimed attorney-client privilege over consulting work, which is odd because attorney-client privilege doesn't protect consulting work. Um, and also just the claim that this work was unrelated strains credit. Um, it's just not credible. And that's because the main nonprofit which paid her, Neighbors for a Better San Francisco, shares the same name with a Neighbors for a San Francisco advocacy that was funding, the, largely funding the recall. And 
those two organizations share the same board member, Bill Obendorf, um, share the uh -huh. same address in San Rafael. They share, um, and they share the same name, as I mentioned. Um, so it's also, it just doesn't exist. Like, for example, I just left the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. Um, I know something about public safety. I have 10 years of experience. I couldn't just go out there and get a job be earning more than $150,000 in six months doing public safety consulting work. Like, those jobs simply do not exist. Yet, through, admittedly, through her connection to the individuals leading the recall, she obtained those jobs. Uh, which alone should tr make us wonder whether those jobs were for actually for work related to the recall. Um, and what's even more interesting is that her claim that the work was unrelated to the recall is even further undermined by a recent statement by one of her friends from the recall, another person who was running to be uh, district supervisor in District 4 named Liana Louie. And Liana Louie embroiled in her own scandal about whether she was really a resident of District 4, told the city attorney in an interview that she was being paid by the recall. Now, if you were a committee actually associated with the recall, you had to make campaign disclosures that would have recorded any payments to a spokesperson and in fact they did have a paid spokesperson that they did disclose but those records do not show any payments to this woman liana louis who claims to have been paid by the recall by the way liana louis claims to be very close friends and like a sister to brooke jenkins now when we have brooke jenkins we know that she was paid by nonprofits, but she says those payments were unrelated to the recall. But then we also have Liana Louie, who claims to be paid by the recall, but we have no records from the recall evidencing those payments. So it's likely she was actually paid by those same nonprofits. All of the evidence is, leads us to strongly believe that Brooke Jenkins was being paid clandestinely by nonprofits, 501c3s, who are not allowed to participate in the recall and to be a spokesperson. She was being paid by nonprofits to free her up her time so that she could be what she claimed as a volunteer spokesman, spokesperson for the recall just because she wasn't receiving an actual paycheck from the recall committees. Um, so that's the current scandal um, involving Brooke Jenkins, which is troubling. And it's very, it's very troubling, and the AG's office won't comment about whether or not there is an ongoing investigation. One would assume that there is and that there may be consequences coming down the pike for Brooke, Brooke Jenkins. Rachel, you wrote a piece for the appeal uh, called Brooke Jenkins Can't Have It Both Ways. The new SFDA is mixing tough-on-crime rhetoric with phony progressive, progressivism. Neither will solve the city's problems. 
one of the things that you point out in the article is that proponents of the recall campaign were successful in blaming Tessa Bedee mm-hmm. for social ills that have absolutely nothing to do with the district attorney's office, like homelessness, dirty streets, visible substance mm-hmm. abuse. Jenkins also did her part to blame Chesa. But now that she's sitting DA, uh, how has her tune changed in terms of what she wants San Franciscans to expect her to actually be able to do and the timeline of those things? Yeah, it was sort of shocking because for someone who consistently blamed D.A. Boudin for crime um, and for things that weren't crime, things that are not criminal justice problems like addiction, like homelessness, as you mentioned, um, as soon as she took office or as soon as she was appointed, she began shifting uh, the goalposts and saying things like, well, you know, I'm going to, you know, people need to recognize that a D.A. doesn't control crime altogether um, and saying things like the fact that, you know, she would judge her success based on how people feel. Um, And you can see from a lot of uh, her rhetoric that she really does focus less on action and substance and more on, you know, buzzwords like accountability, Um, even though she herself, as Lexa really well pointed out, hasn't been held accountable at all for her own dishonesty and her own lack of transparency um, during the recall campaign, as well as now when she's not you know, showing showing her work and explaining uh, more information about what what was going on there. Um, so we see that she's already you know now changing the the measures for how she should be evaluated now that she's in charge. And what I think is really interesting, um, and I don't think I've seen anyone talk about this, is that crime is actually. I just ran the numbers yesterday uh, since she took office, July eighth. Crime is actually up three percent since uh, D.A. Jenkins took office as opposed to the same time period as compared to the same time period last year. No one's talking about that. No one's talking about the fact that it's even up in areas like larceny theft, which she has talked so much about property crime um, during the campaign um, for the recall. So it's it's all of a sudden that the measures have changed as soon as it's no longer convenient for her. Um, and it's huh. it's disturbing to see the media give her a pass on all of that. Um, but a lot of the the problems that she spoke to in San Francisco, she knows are not criminal justice problems. She knows that she can't solve. So now she's trying to deflect from them um, without offering real solutions. Yeah, well, it's been troubling to see the mainstream media act in concert with a lot of this madness. Uh, Lexa, I want to walk through some pieces of your Twitter thread that you posted on September 12th detailing the actualities of Jenkins' uh, records that she's been in the seat. Um, let's start with uh, consequences for repeat offenders. Jenkins says she's doing doling those consequences out. What's the reality? Right. So on August 24th, Jenkins issued her pre-trial detention and cash bail policy, um, which was somewhat surprising to a lot of us, given how much Jenkins had criticized Boudin for not utilizing the tool of cash bail um, to seek pre-trial detention for defendants. But where this is most relevant is where it comes to repeat offenders of property crimes. Now, Jenkins was almost a broken record during the recall campaign about how Chesa wasn't vigorously prosecuting repeat offenders of property crimes. Because, you know, the truth is, is that while California law does provide good provisions to uh, detain someone pre-trial after they've committed a violent crime and therefore pose a 
significant safety risk to the victim or to public safety. When it comes to property crimes, there's no provision in California law to keep someone in jail pre-trial um, without cash bail. And so that's where we see the, the most relevancy, in my opinion, of cash bail is in this topic of repeat property crimes. So Jenkins strongly criticized Chase Boudin for not seeking cash bail in these instances. But on August 24th, she issued her own cash bail policy, which, with minor exceptions, largely tracks Boudin's policy. And most notably, it does not allow for her to, or any attorneys in her office, to seek cash bail in order to keep um, people in jail before trial. And, you know, being on more on the side of criminal justice reform, I'm not criticizing the policy itself. It is very similar to Boudin's on that point. But I think it's interesting to see the duplicity from Brooke Jenkins, who used this as one of her main talking points during the entire recall. But then when she's now in the same position of power and she can determine the extent to which the office utilizes cash bail, and she recognizes how a no-cash bail policy is actually very extremely popular in the Bay Area and in San Francisco, um, she is deciding to walk away from a talking point that got a lot of people very excited about the recall of Chesa Boudin because property crimes are, you know, it's the shoplifting that we see going viral at Walgreens. It's the it's what people are associating increased homelessness and poverty in the city and pro and very much associating that with property crimes. So this has kind of just silently fallen off her platform, and I think that's very interesting. Well, it also goes to the ways in which she talks out of both sides of her mouth. And, you know, she sent out a campaign email acting as if she, her bail, recognition that bail was um, – you know, discriminatory was hers when in fact that was D.A. Boudin's policy. And if anything, hers um, created more exceptions for bail and more detention, including for drug crimes. So I think it's just as as Lexa said, it's duplicitous that she is pretending, you know, taxed Boudin when it's convenient for her and then capitalizes on things that he implemented um, for her own campaign as well. We've got two minutes, but I really want to ask this question. Uh, John Hamasaki is running yes. for the seat. Uh, what do you think the left, the actual community members of San Francisco, needs to do if he's got a chance at winning? And are there places where the left let Chessa down that can be addressed in the upcoming election? Two minutes Absolutely. we've got. Absolutely. Rachel, 60 seconds, then Lexa, 60 sure. seconds, then we got to wrap. Sure. <laughs> How, you know, we need to mobilize and organize and fundraise. Uh, there was so much misinformation that proliferated during the recall effort, and the left did not come until it was too late to stand up to it, to correct it, to course correct in terms of the values that San Francisco elected D.A. Boudin to promote. We need to stand up or we're going to watch the further denigration of our city. John Amasaki is truly independent. He was a former police commissioner. 
Um, he was the former president of the Asian American Bar Association, and he's willing to go after corruption, which is, as you've heard today, is a huge problem in this administration. We need to be fundraising. We need to be knocking on doors. We need to be on social media talking about John Hamasaki, talking about how to get out his message to hold the powerful to account in a way that isn't being done right now. But if we don't step up, if we don't mobilize, we're going to be stuck with this DA and all of the harm and lack of transparency um, is just going to proliferate. Alexa, yeah, are there places where the left let Chessa down? Go ahead. Where the left let Chessa down. I mean, yeah. I, I really want to emphasize the extreme corruption that is plaguing San Francisco right now. We have an enormous corruption scandal that Mohammed Nuru was just sentenced to seven years in prison. Others have pled guilty. There's a total of 12 senior officials in San Francisco that are involved in a massive corruption scandal, including Mayor London Breed herself. Mayor London Breed seconds. appointed Brooke Jenkins. So it's just, we're at a moment in time where our focus in the district attorney's office should be cleaning up the city of the corruption. Uh, and I think John Hamasaki is a good candidate for those values. Hamasakiforda.com website. <laughs> All right. I, I, I do have to say that that I, I can't make a public endorsement and, sorry, and not, sorry, uh, in, in this interview. Uh, but but I have really just been looking at the role of the left, not just in San Francisco, but across the country and what we've got to do to push back on this tactic, which is rolling out in local elections everywhere by the GOP. Rachel Marshall and Lexa Grainer, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We've been joined by Alexa Grainer, attorney formerly with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, who resigned, and Rachel Marshall, communications, former communications director and policy advisor for recalled San Francisco District Attorney Chessa Boo-Dean. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. We're